Welcome to the You Get Today podcast, where we highlight ordinary people who have faced extraordinary challenges in life and found a way to overcome. We hope their stories will encourage you that you are not alone in whatever pain you're facing and that today is yours to make amazing. I am super excited and honored to introduce you to today's guest. Dr. Amy Walker is a brilliant woman and one of the most generous people I know. What I love most about Amy is not only how she tackled obstacle after obstacle, and has not given up, but also the impact she's made globally and locally. Often we think it's impossible to make change from a little town with few resources, but Amy has shown again and again the impact we can make, especially when we come together as a community. And so I am super excited for you to hear her story. So Amy, with every podcast, we start with a brag sheet. I may have to have you define some of this because your brag sheet is ridiculously awesome and I probably won't understand some of it. So let's start. All right. Amy is currently a tenure track professor in the School of Teaching, Learning, and Curriculum Studies at Kent State University in Ohio. She was a Ruth G. Strickland Fellow at Indiana University. That's an amazing story, all of her driving to Indiana University. We'll get into that. She has traveled to more than 20 countries and five continents, the majority of them by herself or with other women. She has two amazing little girls. She's been married for 16 years. She obtained her PhD in literacy, culture, and language education during the pandemic and while caretaking for family members and her two babies. She was the director of a bi-literacy community program called Summer Fun in Plymouth, Indiana for six years. She wrote grants for nonprofits here and in Eastern Europe and for women-owned businesses. This one you have to help me with, Aim. She is the co-founder of Lava Uzunita. Yes, a grassroots community organization supporting local Latino community. She taught English to resettling refugees in Eastern Europe. She was selected to help with cultural orientation for U.S. resettling Afghan refugees in an emergency situation. She recently started a program called Summer Rise for any inner city refugee youth. She has presented her research over 30 times and published a dozen peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters. She sang in Carnegie Carnegie Hall, which I did not know this, when she was uh, college and the best. She sat the bench for a collegiate volleyball team. She's trying to make us feel like she's one of us. That's why there's that last thing thrown in there. All right, and that's a ridiculous brag sheet. I love it. What do you think when you hear it? Are you like, is it like a weird, I kind of remember those things, but I can't believe they're all like have been done. So I have this real inner tension and I think it comes from Midwest and my cultural upbringing to be self-deprecating in response to that. So I'm really trying to fight hard not to, because all I want to do is laugh and be like, it's not that big of a deal, <laughs> but um, I'm re- I'm trying not to do that because you know, um, for sure. And I appreciate that too. Do you think that's also like a woman thing? Like, do you think kind of play off big, big deals? Probably. I'm sure. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Well, you need to be proud of it because it's crazy. Amazing. All right. So what I want to start with first is kind of your upbringing, because I think that plays into some of the impact that you've had, like with the travel. So growing up, I know you and your brother, um, mom and dad, in small town, so Plymouth, Indiana. 
What kinds of things do you think, do you think at that time growing up that started some of the thinking of traveling or did that come later? That's a really good question. So my, um, I would have to think about that for a second. Um, my family background, my dad is um, uh, the son of two Swedish immigrants. And so being Swedish American, like the Swedish side of our family culture was really important, especially in my grandparents were alive. Um, we did all of the traditional like Swedish heritage, especially around holidays. And I think that for my brother and I, it established this sense of culture and this sense of um, there's a bigger world outside of a little small town, Indiana, Yeah. Um, in, a, in a big way. And even though my family had no desire to go anywhere ever, um, yeah, I, I think I just started becoming curious about the world. I also was an avid reader, and I think that was a really big part of what kind of led to my fascination. I remember being fascinated with um, like Monet in third grade and just knowing that somewhere out there, he painted water lilies like at, in a real place. And I remember my mom bought me a book um, about a little girl, I think her name was Linnea, goes to like, goes to France to see the, and I just remember being like, that's real, like you can travel to other places. Like that, that would be so neat to see these. So I don't know, I think I really give credit to my background and to reading. Yeah. Do you think too, cause when I hear you say those things, it's so funny because probably when you were that age and even maybe through high school, you would have thought that was like a normal, like, oh, all kids are thinking about this. But like, I hear that and I'm like, I never thought that way. So, I mean, do you feel like there's something in you that was kind of a, this is just a passion I'm going to always have? Or do you, I mean, do you think it was just the reading and the exposure? Um. So what you're basically saying is, Aim, you're real weird. <laughs> you probably thought you were real normal. You were real yeah. weird. No, I... I definitely think it was reading. I really do. I think it was, I remember in fifth grade, um, the librarian at the school at North Liberty Elementary had to have a meeting with my teacher, Mrs. Shriver. I remember this because she <laughs> said, I think Amy is lying about her. It was the book it challenge, you know, where you read so many books to get pizzas. Yes, Pizza Hut. Yes. And she's like, there's no way. I think she's just getting free pizza. Like she's gaming the system. <laughs> And my teacher had to say, you don't understand. This kid reads constantly. Like she really does go home and read all these books and brings them back. So I really do credit a lot of it to reading. That's interesting. From what I know about you and the connection with immigrants and literacy, that's so interesting to me. Is that because you feel like reading is like a gateway, like into cultures? Like when you read something from that culture, that's kind of like where you go, oh, I'm getting it. Or do you think it's just when you like if you're an immigrant and you're learning or someone who's underprivileged and you're learning to read, that's such a huge thing to take into life? I think I think if there's a common thread from when I was little to even now, I've always been fascinated, fascinated by stories and the fact that every single person has a story. And, and I remember in fourth grade, my grandma um, came to our elementary school and she spoke about her experience immigrating over um, and some bullying that she went through and, you know, didn't speak the language. And I just remember being fascinated by that. My my mom's parents were married at the ages of 15 and 17. Oh, my and, God. And didn't tell their parents. 
their parents didn't know until they started getting mail with my grandpa's last name to the house. So like these stories just fascinated me and, you know, world events and how they're really caused by individual stories colliding with other stories. So I think this thread of story, um, and, and, you know, being from small town, Indiana, we, we, I didn't have a lot of exposure to immigrants or people who didn't look like me or think the way I thought. And so stories and reading, yeah, was a, a gateway into other cultures um, and also kind of an escape from my own. Yeah, for sure. So talk a little bit about, and I know obviously the Eastern Europe, um, that was the first I remember of you really traveling, but talk about some of your like going first couple times out of the country. Um, many times as you have, whatever you want to share is awesome. I, this could be an entire like podcast series, but, um, <laughs> I have so many funny stories. Um, my, I think my first time going out of the country was in college. We were invited to sing in the Cuba. We were invited by the minister of Cuba and that was when Cuba was closed. So it was a really big deal. We had to get permission from the white house and like do all these jump through all these hoops and do all these parents things. So yeah. And, and we had like cultural orientation classes about, you know, Cuba and communism. And, um, so that was like, what, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. So my first experience out of the country was really serious yeah. and treated really seriously. Um, but then, yeah, going to Havana and being with my friends and not, I think not being with my family, um, yeah. was just eye opening. I felt like yeah, I, I was like, this is an, it's a completely different world. Right. And I just was like, I want to do this all the time. Yeah. So the first time you traveled, it was like, this is it. The bug has bit kind of thing. So yeah. then what, how often then after college were you going and traveling or was there a little gap when you first got married? I should have written this down. I, yeah, there was a gap. I wanted to study over abroad, but I was dating this guy who decided to go <laughs> and serve in Baghdad. And I was like, and this was, yeah, this was literally my thought is, oh, if I travel abroad, um, I won't be home if he comes home from leave. Sure. And like, that would be okay, but, <laughs> right. but I can just, I'll just go some other time. Like, yeah. So um, I really, I always wanted to try. I wanted to study abroad. I wanted to travel. So um when we got married, uh, when Josh and I got married, um, we, we traveled a little bit together, but I had friends who lived in different places all over, uh, from college. So I, I would visit them and <clears throat> not having kids and being in your twenties is awesome because you have a lot of autonomy. Sure. Um, but one of my friends lived in Venezuela and she was like, Hey, you know, if you ever want to come see me. And I was like, yeah, okay. So then so then my next one, I think my next trip was to Venezuela. Um, and my uncle worked for the DEA and he's like, you cannot travel to Venezuela by yourself. And I was like, well, I'm doing it. Peace. <laughs> Hope you have some contacts in case something happens. I'm good. Um, so I don't know. I think because I traveled early by myself um, to some, you know, countries that weren't known for being safe necessarily, sure. um, or the safest. I, I felt fine in Venezuela. Um, I don't know. I think I just, I didn't have a, as big of a fear as I, I see other people having about traveling. Right. And for our listeners, one thing you have to know about Amy, 
she is the most um okay probably the best listener so when you hear her talking about all these friends she literally has just imagine the most friends you can imagine and then more than that so amy is amazing at like that connecting but not i hate the word networking because it sounds so kind of like human resources so that just is such a weird term for me like people are a thing and amy's not a networker in that kind of context but she genuinely cares about people's story and about people. And I want people to understand those small connections. That's how you have traveled and bringing a community together. That's what it looks like. And I think sometimes we think, oh my gosh, if I want to travel, I'm going to have to, like, I don't know anybody there. Or I don't know, but it's those tiny connections that then keep adding up. And then the willingness to just say yes. Like who says that? Oh, you should go to Venezuela. Okay. Like, to take people up on that when they say come visit or like it's a thing that leads to a thing and it's like what a gift and what a neat I'm sure looking back and we'll talk some more about the uh like fertility issues and stuff I'm sure at that time you were thinking well this is awful I'm ready to start a family but it also opened up doors of like you said being in your 20s and just going when you want to so now tell me a little bit about the Romania trips. So, um, yes, you're all, you're exactly right. The other thing is, um, I did, for, I remembered this part. Josh and I went to Jamaica for our honeymoon before oh. I went to Venezuela. And we had an interesting car ride on the way to our resort. And I just remember once we got to the resort, we were so far removed from what we had seen driving in that that really um that really made an impact on me i didn't realize how big at the time but i was like i want authenticity i want authentic travel and so when you also when you know somebody in a different country and they invite you to come or it's a standing up you know invitation to anyone because you know um who doesn't love visitors that's what right. i always i was like of course they want me to come they want they want visitors they're lonely sure. um i was like I will get a, an authentic experience. And that was just super important to me. Um, and so I think that that's also what led to, yeah, me going to Eastern Europe to teach refugees. For some reason, I don't know why. I remember being in college and seeing on um, like a, a advertisement board, you know, that they would have up like just in the hallways of like, come do this, come study abroad, come do this. And there was one come travel overseas and teach English to refugees. And I remember being like, oh, that sounds really, really interesting. I would love to do that. I wrote down their information and then didn't follow through because of what we talked about earlier. And um, 10 years later, 10 years later, came across the same name of the same company and was like, wait a minute, I remember seeing information about this. And so I looked into it more and over 10 years, I just, um, you know, immigration had become a bigger part of policy in the country. And I was living in places where I was seeing it affect people that I knew. And, um, I just had a, a heart for that. And I was like, I want to, I want to go do that. I have an English degree. I would love to go teach. I was getting my master's in, um, English education at the time and did some TESOL classes. So, so yeah, so I applied and was accepted and decided to quit my very cushy research corporate job um, that I'd been at for seven years out of college and take a leap of faith and 
do what I really felt like I wanted to do with my life, which was just volunteer for a summer and go um, teach English. So wow. I went to the pest. Yeah. Wow. So here's uh, something that I heard you say, Amy, that I think is so interesting. And then I have a question about the policy part of it. I think the authentic travel is such a thing that we don't think about. Like, and it, and I have heard people say like, oh, we were, but when they say it, they're like, we stayed in the resort and I'll say, oh, was that like, did you see some things? Well, yeah, but that was outside the resort. Almost like that's a normal response. And I think when you, in your situation, can drive through that and go, yeah, this isn't though normal. Like, I want to see how these people actually live. Not that there's anything wrong with vacationing or whatever, but it's like at what expense and at what point are you closing your eyes to what 90% of that culture actually lives like? Um, who are not benefiting from your travel, chances are, and the finances of it. But here's my question, Eam. Do you feel like in the United States, because a lot of screaming and yelling goes on about immigrants and what's going on in other countries, and I don't know as the typical American that we understand how much are our hands tied? Are we doing anything? Can we? Why can't we step in? Do you think it's even a that high up political issue? Or is it like you're saying, it's just the common person's job to travel, to see different cultures, to do what you can and not worry about policy change and people at the high up because it's a waste of time. What's your thinking on that? My thinking is that policy is necessary for governing large bodies of people. I understand the point of policy. I think policy is a necessary part of our world. But I think if we just focus on the policy, it goes back to the story. We forget that I I think, um, and I believe that immigration um, is a safety issue. It's a human rights issue. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as a political issue. Everything's political and that's a different conversation. I mean, everything is because uh, political just means that it affects our daily lives. It affects our society. So I argue, you know, everything is is political, but it doesn't have to be partisan. And I think that immigration and, and we're talking about real people. Yeah. And I think I think once you meet other people and you immerse yourself in their world for a minute and you hear their stories and I'm just very affected by that and I allow myself to be affected by that. And I think that's another thing is people can hear stories and they don't allow themselves to be affected by it. Um, yeah. If you stay open and allow yourself to be affected by people's stories, it it really does. It can open your eyes and realize I don't have all the answers. I have one side. Um, so what is best for humans? What is best for children in this situation? And that's just become my narrowed in focus. Yep, I, I agree. And I think too, it's very easy to, and I'm making a generalization here for Americans, but the kind of idea of, well, they're just illegal and that they shouldn't be doing that. Whereas it's the thinking of if people are fleeing here and they're desperate to do the kinds of things they're doing, that's a mother so desperate. Like, how can you not see that if you were in that situation, you too would do whatever it took? And I think that switchover mentality, it's we're, we're being lazy if we won't put ourselves in those shoes and we just kind of go, well, that's a big policy issue. And if we just let all of those people come over, what are we going to do? And it's like, let's just talk like you said about the, that one mom story. 
and trying to get a child to safety. Like every mother would do that. Now, tell me how, give me the timeline with um, being a teacher in Plymouth and how the immigration issue kind of was in your backyard kind of idea. So the, this was such a trippy part of my life because <laughs> I was working as a property tax research specialist for this very large internationally known company. And, and I, I enjoyed my work. Well, I enjoyed the people. I was good at my job. Um, and I, ironically, I was researching policy and legislative cha legislative changes. And so um, I was on that side of things and then communicating those to really big clients. Um, and I just was like, this is not, this is not for me. <laughs> this is not what I want to do with my life. I knew day four that this job was going to be temporary and I stayed for seven years. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, when they called me for an interview, I thought it was a scam. I really did. I was like, no, I, this doesn't sound real. Um, and I was like, I'll take the job. Cause we were desperate at that time. I could not find a good job and we had moved across the country after we got married. And, um, I was like, I'll take it. And I stayed for seven years. And over that time, yeah, I just was like, I don't know what to do with my life, but this is not for me. I've always done education things. Like I was a tutor for a long time. I volunteered in schools. Um, I actually was an education major in college and um, I quit because I was like, I don't want to make bulletin boards the rest of my life. I can't do this. I can't, I literally can't do it. I don't, I, I can't. And, um, so I, I dropped out of being an education major, but it was always, but, but then I would come home, I would come to my apartment or my dorm and I would have a stack outside my door of my friend's papers with post-it notes. Will you please edit this for me? Will you revise this for me? You're really good at this. Can you, thank you. And um, so I was constantly doing that kind of work anyway. And long story short, um, I ended up going back to school while I was still in my job and I pursued a master's in English education. And I literally don't know why, um, because I didn't want to. But right, Josh, right. Josh was like, just go, go do something, like, go do something. You want to, you want to study something, pick something. And so I literally just picked it. In fact, when I got my diploma, the president, you know, is standing there with your diploma to hand it to you across the stage. I am walking across the stage. I'm graduating from my master's program. And he said, congratulations. What are you going to do with your life? The obvious answer is teacher. And I, because I'm, I have my master's in education and I said, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. And he was like, Good luck. I mean, like we're going to call you for our college video. You You're going to be our on our recruitment because <laughs> you are so sure. So, so, it, but I just, I had so many hesitancies and I was anxious and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like it. It's going to be a huge pay cut to be a teacher. Um, maybe I should just play it safe and just stay at this job. I work from home. Um, but I was to the point where I was, um, so internally unhappy. I was happy. I had joy. I was doing fun things with my life. But I was like, sure. this there has to be more to life than this. And so I quit my job. I did not have a teaching job yet. I did not have a teaching license. Um, we had moved states um, right after I graduated. So um, I, yeah, I quit my job to volunteer. I actually asked my job, will you let, I will work 
I will take all my vacation for the summer and then I will get up in the morning and work um, on your on Arizona hours when I'm in Eastern Europe and I can make it work. And they said no. They, and they call me, so I called their bluff basically because they're like, if you do that, you're going to have to quit. And I wrestled with that for a long time and I said, okay, like I'm, yeah. then I'm done. They called me back like three months later asking me if I would return um, and said it was a huge mistake that they were, you know, right. They, dumb for not having that. They, they were like, we didn't think you'd quit. And I'm like, well, um, <laughs> I didn't either. Amy? <laughs> but I think what the biggest life lesson for me then that effect, has affected me the rest of my life was when I gave my two weeks notice, I did not have a job. My husband didn't have a steady job. We had just moved. And I, it was a huge, like, and that, that goes against everything. As much as I travel, I'm a big safety person and like security is a big deal. Um, Three days before I left and before my my last day of work, I got a call from a friend um, who said, hey, I know you just got your education degree. We really need an ESL teacher. I know you've done some work. I know you're getting ready to go overseas. Um, you can get an emergency license. Will you teach? And it was at uh, a public middle school there. And so I went in for an interview the next day. I sent in my resume. I went in for an interview next day. The day before I left the country, I had a full-time teaching job. So and it was not on my radar. It's so crazy. And I think what um, listeners might, something that's so interesting and one of the reasons I wanted to have Amy on is there are, there have been so many times in our, I don't know, 20 year friendship where it's been just like that. Like you are like, I am fine. And, and people will understand you can be a hard worker and be fine at your job. Like when I was teaching, it was fine. I liked it. You're, there's just hard workers who will make, like you said, I was joyful. I felt like I was making a difference. It was fine. But there is something in you that just goes, this is not like I have one life to live. This is not it. And I think it's so ironic because when you have those feelings, it will not make sense on paper. And chances are even your closest friends and family will be like, mm. see, that's why Amy and I get to get along so well, because we are literally that friend that's like, do it. And it's crazy because we know it's not logical, but there's something about, I've seen it over and over in Amy's life where it doesn't make sense to pursue a master's right now. It doesn't make sense to quit that job in Arizona right now. It doesn't make sense to go after your PhD with two small kids. And, and every single time when you've pursued what you're like, I don't really know why an English degree, like we look back now and it's like, holy cow, that's exactly what you needed for now. And you didn't know it then, but you trusted that that was it and did all the things you had to do and it worked. Now talk about like, how much did personal life play in making those decisions? Because I know at times it was like, this is not the time to do this. This is going to be really hard, especially with your two little girls. It's very important to you to spend as much time as possible with them. But some of the decisions like the PhD, it was like, can I do it and be okay with the time that I, because obviously it's not full-time, it's two full-time jobs. So some things like you only have so many hours in a day. So what kind of were your main, like, I will not sacrifice this. I will not. Was there things that you just had in your mind that you were like, I'll do everything I can do, but I won't do this. Is that how you did the whole, I don't want to call it balance because I don't really believe in that. But so what, how did you do that? How were you able to 
keep priorities and still pursue what you wanted? I would say that I had no idea in the moment how to do that well. I had so much anxiety when I before I quit my job. And I think this is something that like I want uh, that. And this is why I laugh when you're like, Amy's done all these things because I laugh because I'm like, if only people knew <laughs> that I don't necessarily like I, I think when we think about people making these bold decisions or taking these risks, we think they already have the confidence to make that decision. I had zero confidence in the next step. I had zero. I was not sleeping when, before I quit my job. I mean, I was, I was talking to people like, is this the right thing to do? And yeah, a lot of people were like, no, right. (laughs) Why would you give up your job? Like, why would you do that? And, um, and you don't have anything lined up. Why would you go serve refugees? Who cares? That's not in our country. You know, why would you go over right now? And I, so I felt like I was making unconventional decisions um, which goes against kind of my upbringing and my religious upbringing as well. Um, you just, you stay in your bounds, you follow the rules, you play by the rules. Um, and so I think that I, I didn't, I just made choices in the moment, like not in the moment I, I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and I had anxiety and I would have panic attacks sometimes about it. Like, oh my gosh, this feels so huge. But then I just would think about, I would put myself a year or two years or five years down the road and say, what do I want to tell myself five years from now? Like that I stayed at this job that I know that is not good for me. I know that I hate this job. Five years from now, I'm going to look back and tell myself that was the right decision when I could have this opportunity and who knows what could happen. So I just, I I felt like I made the hard decisions, but I wouldn't say I made them with grace. Yeah. 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 So remember us talking on the phone and like Amy would call and say, so I was just getting Soleil her sippy cup and I dumped it on her head. And we (laughs) like, it was almost this. If you in that moment, when you are so stinking overwhelmed can just go, I am human. These people that we put up on a pedestal that we think don't have human experiences because wow, how are they getting that done? How are they They're doing it just like that. And like you said, it's that look five years down the road. What are my girls going to remember? What do I want them to see? Like, and how, how did you kind of, um, fight against the, like, did you have some of the mom guilt stuff? Did you feel like people like put that pressure on you? Did you have to just like ignore a lot of that kind of noise? How did you do that day to day? Um, so first of all, I have to say when we were moving, um, to accept, I accepted this professor job and we were moving and I, um, was moved, Josh was somewhere doing something. And I was like, I'm going to take this time and move heavy things by myself. This is what I do. And so I was moving in a huge mattress and I moved it down our, our old stairway and I got it wedged so tight. I got it stuck in the stairwell and I was trapped. I was completely trapped. I I didn't have my phone. I was by myself and I am just like, I need to make a TikTok. This is what my TikTok account should be about is like, I am going to be a professor. I'm going to teach other people important things. And I just got a mattress wedged in the stairway and myself wedged. Like 
in the name of efficiency. And oh, I, yeah. My God. So I think about that stuff all the time. Um, and, and I think that I just laugh, like, like you were saying, like, <clears throat> I don't know. I just think, um, you have to laugh at the humanness. I, I mean, I am so clumsy. I drop things all the time. My kids, even my girls are like, uh, so late. It's a, it's a regular joke of, um, did you forget where you parked the car again? Or she'll come home and be like, daddy, mama forgot where the car was again. And we had to roam around the parking lot. So like, I don't know. I think just embracing that part allowed me to say, um, I'm going to, I'm okay. I I've, grown in confidence in myself. I did a lot of listening. Um, a lot of listening. I, you know, I had really bad postpartum depression and we went through a failed adoption and I just was like, I don't know what life is all about. Life is so, I don't understand it. I don't understand the way it works. I don't understand the way God works. I don't know what's happening. So like, I need to listen. And so one of the things that I really, um, developed through that listening was self-confidence. Um, and I just, it was said over and over and I, I really took it in like, trust yourself. You've gotten this far in life, make your own freaking decisions. Yeah. And so I did again, not well, because I still would seek other people's advice, but at the end of the day, I learned to weed it out or see, okay, that that's coming through a fear filter. That's not for me. That's coming through, um, like, um, shaming, a shaming filter. And that, and what I also began to see when, when, especially moms, when other moms would say you were pregnant and pursuing a PhD, you need to quit. Um, your, your children are, I had, I had a good friend tell me, um, I can't believe you're going to continue with your PhD and sacrifice your children's happiness. All they're going to see is a, is a stressed out mom. And you're going to put that on your kids. And instead of taking that in, what I, I mean, that was really hurtful for a friend to tell me that. But what I saw was she's projecting her own yeah. me. Um, and I think that out of fear, a lot of times women who maybe listened, and, and I'm generalizing, but it has been my experience that when I get pushback from women, especially in moms, it has been out of this, I chose to stay home and not sue a risky thing. So I need to validate that. And so I'm going to project that onto you and say, don't do this to make yep. myself feel better about my decisions. Yep. And once I saw that for what it was, I, there's no judgment in it. Everybody has their own life. And I just thought, you know what? I trust myself. I love my children. I, I they, I, I'm all about connect, like connection, humans first. My, my kids are everything to me. I'm going to keep going. And when it doesn't work, then I'll stop. Yep. That's yep. just kind of how I did that. And I think it's amazing too. And like, we're talking about story and I think being able to stand back and say in your mind, maybe not out loud, that's her issue. I don't have to take that on and to trust, like you're saying, if you have this something inside of you, you also have the things it's going to take to make it happen. You know, it's like it, for me, PhD, I don't want to do that. And so if I went after it, yes, I would sacrifice my children. And yes, I would sacrifice whatever, because I wouldn't be ready to do it. But the fact that you had it in you and you were like, this is what I need to do. I want to pursue this. I want to travel. I want to do what I can for immigration. I want to write these grants. I want to, 
then it gets done because it's like there's this joy in it and this. And you're right. When people, anytime, if people could just remember that, if someone says something to you and it creates fear, you do not have to own or take that on. Fear should have no place. Like, let that go. Yes, there's always some, I don't know, pushback when you're taking risk, but that doesn't, that's not the same as like a shaming fear. And I think if you can actually get to the place where you stand back and just go, I'm not, I'm not owning that. That might be your thing. And obviously, like you said, it's hardest when it comes from somebody we love. But then again, some of us let too many people speak into our worlds that don't really deserve to be there. Now, what about, tell me about when you were in Plymouth, how did it come about just because you were a teacher at the time? And was it just the high number of like the Hispanic population in Plymouth that you started to see, oh my gosh, like there is a need here and I'm not just going to like coast along and ignore it and let these kids fall through the cracks. Like how did that come to be? So my first, really my first official teaching experience was overseas and I was with refugees and in Hungary at the time and still today, um, there's a very anti-immigrant um, agenda and there was propaganda everywhere about immigrants and, and refugees and they wouldn't call them refugees, they called them migrants, but they were fleeing. I mean, it was, it was awful. These, it was awful. And these stories, I, that could, that should be a podcast somewhere of just stories because when you meet somebody who has had an awful, awful experience and they are one of the nicest people you've ever met, um, it doesn't, it, it, it disrupts your upbringing and, and the things that you've been taught. So I had this experience and um, came back. I was an ESL teacher and in the town in Indiana that I taught um, in Plymouth, it's a 30%, it has increased to a 30% um, you know, a, a population of Hispanic origin. They call themselves Hispanics, um, but Latinx, you know, um, Mex mostly Mex Mexican and Honduran students were my students. And I went in um, thinking, okay, like I'm gonna be a support. I'm gonna teach them, help them with English. And again, learning these kids' stories, I had, I lived in Plymouth most of my life. I had no idea. I had no idea. I would, my first year um, as an ESL teacher there, I had six students throughout the year new just come in the morning and be like they're brand new from Honduras their parents put them on a train from Honduras by themselves they've been escorted here here they are and one girl like had to leave her mom and she was 13 and just cried and cried and cried and so it's like heart and she she didn't know any English and she was scared um but what they were facing in Honduras was a lot worse um, the sexual assault rates in some of these poor towns in Honduras. I mean, it, I had one student tell me like, it's inevitable. Like if I go back, it's not probably going to happen. It's going to happen. And my parents didn't want me to, to grow up in that. And wow. they're trying to come. Um, but you know, it's, it's expensive and it's really tough. So though I, I realized like, oh my gosh, um, refugees in Budapest and, these immigrant students here are not that different. Some of them right. have very similar stories. So then I started asking a lot of questions and thinking about like, what does this mean? How do we reconcile? There are major problems in our education system. It's not equitable from that standpoint. A lot of it is reactionary. And from a policy perspective, you can't have policies in place for things that you can't imagine that are going to happen. 
So like Plymouth schools were not prepared for this influx of migrants and these influx of unaccompanied minors. Um, it was just, it was a time of a lot of um, violence and, and certain things in different countries that caused these waves. So you kind of have to react, but but that's when I started asking questions and that led me to saying like, maybe I should, maybe I should pursue this on a deeper level. Um, and, and maybe I can make some, some immediate change, at least in a little circle. I might have some power to do that, um, or yeah. some resources to research what's happening and what we need. Yeah, that's huge. It's so huge that you just said like listening and then realizing we don't always have a plan. Like there was no plan for minors to be here. And you start with something like something is better than what they're having. They have right now you know, and that willingness to get into that story and have them trust you and talk to you. That's huge. So huge. Miss Amy, I want to be um, very cognizant of your time. So I don't want to take you too long. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm for sure having you on again, because there's so many stories and I know them because we're friends and I want you to tell everybody. However, I want to end the podcast with three questions always. So First off, what's the one thing you want your people to say they remember about you? Um, I think that I want them to say that she prioritized um, human relationships, that she saw, that she, that I saw them, that I took time to intentionally, authentically listen and love them and they felt loved and seen by me. That would be my biggest takeaway. That's awesome. Okay. If you knew today was your last day, how would you spend it? I don't want to know because I will just be in an utter perpetual state of perpetual state of panic and I will, I will ruin my last day. And then I'll, my last two hours, I will groan about how I ruined my last day and it wasn't good enough. So I hope I don't know. Um, but I think I would be in nature with my, with my kids, with my, you know, with Josh, um, and if people want to come in and out, I'll just be with them in the trees. And that that's enough. <laughs> awesome. All right. This one's the big one. On these all these different times, you've had like major obstacles or thought about quitting, which I know you have because we all do it. Um, what's the one piece of advice that you would tell someone when they're actually in? Um, sorry, you froze up for a minute. I, I would say that the mantra that I've lived by and that I see other people living by that I think is important. My biggest advice is, are you making that decision out of fear? Um, if so, don't do it. Then don't make a decision or make the opposite. Like think about it. So not, not quitting my job. I was staying in a job because I was afraid of the unknown. Um, I wasn't afraid of going overseas. I wasn't afraid of doing things with refugees. I was afraid of of not having security. So I would say, and same thing with, you know, having a family, making decisions that are best for your kids, um, you know, choosing a career. If it's out of fear, whether it's what your family is going to think, what people are going to think, it then don't don't do that thing because that's not truth. Yeah, for sure. I think that's huge. That's huge. Oh my gosh, Amy, thank you so much. We thank talked for an hour. I cannot believe it. I could have talked all day because 
I, the stories are amazing, but we'll have you on again so that we can hear some of those. But I, I so appreciate your time and just the, I think some of the things you said will encourage people to do what they can where they're at, because sometimes we just, it seems like such an overwhelming big problem, but there are things we can do here. And listening as like silly and insignificant as that seems like listening to someone's story is huge. It really is. Yeah. And I'm literally a nobody. Like I feel like I am nothing special, <laughs> truly. Um, so everyone should just live the life that they feel like they need to live. So for sure. thanks for having me, Rachel. Thank you. All right.